Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome an amazing scholar, Dr. Sean R. Martin, to the guest chair today as we talk about social class mobility. Sean earned his PhD and MS in management from the Johnson School of Management at Cornell University, and his award-winning research addresses questions related to leadership, organizational culture, and how societal contexts affect leaders and followers, and has appeared in many of our top journals, such as the Academy of Management Journal, Academy of Management Review, Administrative Science Quarterly, and Organizational Behavior and Human Decision Processes, just to name a few. Additionally, his work has been featured in top media outlets such as New York Times, Washington Post, CNBC, Forbes, Fast Company Inc., Time Magazine, Harvard Business Review, and the Boston Globe. Currently, he is the Donald and Lauren Morell Associate Professor at University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. Dr. Martin, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thanks, Oscar. Happy to be here. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. WH Consulting Firm provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. We take a holistic approach to diagnosing issues and offer customized solutions to fit clients' needs. Our goal is to help clients maximize their productivity and well-being and exploit untapped capabilities. Clients can be sure that all WH Consulting proposals are designed around the latest evidence-based management solutions. WH Consulting is proud to have obtained Minority Business Enterprise Certification by the state of New Jersey. For more information, find us online at www.whconsultingfirm.com. So it is our season four finale and what a wonderful season it has been. So people who know me know that I come from very humble beginnings, but I always tell people that although I clearly was poor, I'm so appreciative that I actually didn't feel poor growing up. In fact, I really didn't know that I was poor until I went to college and was exposed to such a vast array of people with so many different backgrounds, life experiences, and wealth statuses. So as a person who now enjoys a much different lifestyle than how I grew up, I am fascinated with this whole notion of social class and social class mobility and how it plays out in our society. So I'm so excited to have as our season four finale guest, one of the leading management experts in the area here to talk about it today. So Sean, let's get started. So that we're all on the same page, can you just define for us what social class is and explain how you decided to even get into this research area? The definition can be a little bit fuzzy. I think the most important aspects of understanding it is it's a position of advantage or disadvantage compared to other people, basically your ability to access resources. So the way that we measure it and kind of operationalize it is around things like income, how much money do you make, or if it's your income, your origin, if you're talking about your social class upbringing, how much did your parents make? Things like what's your education level and what's your occupation? The reason it's those things is they'll give you access to things that we value societally. So like income, I can buy the stuff that I want and have nice things. People come over to my house and go, oh, wow, this person's doing well. Education is I can, you know, speak in a sophisticated way. That's one that has been a lifelong interesting evolution for me is finding myself in conversations where people say, I don't know if that's really germane to this point and things like that. And you're like, who's germane? You know, then you find out, oh yeah, this is how these people talk, you know, that when they're in this like context or other things like occupational prestige, which is you can walk into a room and say, here's what I do. And everybody goes, oh, wow, how that's so impressive. All those things give you Resources that you can use, cultural resources, social influence and status ones, like buying things, all those. So it's like 
Do you have access to those things that can help you get ahead? So yeah, it's basically your relative position on those. My interest in this area started when I was just still in grad school. I was at the Johnson School and studying the things that a lot of us study. You know, you take your classes and you think about where you fit in the mainstream of research on different topics. And then I had this really cool experience where I was enjoying but not loving a lot of the stuff that I was studying and the projects I was working on. And then I got access to go to this manufacturing firm to collect some data. And the manufacturing firm was out in Michigan. And I did one of those things that you can only really do while you're a grad student because it just takes all of the energy that a human being can muster. I did like 70 interviews across three shifts in like a week. It was an insane interviewing schedule. But I was interviewing people who dress like you and I do now to go to work, put on the collared shirt, nice watch and things like that. Or you go to work. I was interviewing those folks that worked in the offices. And then I was also spending most of my time on the floors, manufacturing floors. And I started realizing these folks talked about the meaningfulness of their work in very, very different ways and like what was motivating to them in very, very different ways. And I started going back to my room at the end of each night and doing some Googling and being like, what do we know about people who don't work in like consulting or people who don't work in accounting or tech or anything like that? And the answer is not that much from a management science perspective. And that is a huge oversight because the vast majority of people who are employed in this country are not working in the industries that we study typically. And also it kind of spoke to my own background. I'm always really quick to say at this point, because I think everybody wants the story of like, I came from poverty and blah, and I never, I did not. I was born into basically a lower middle-class single wage earner home when I was a kid. And then pretty quickly thereafter, my family started a rather stark upward trajectory. My mom went and got an EDD and I got to watch her go through and do that as a part of it as a single mom. My brother and I went on and got education and we ended up interestingly being in school systems, however, where we were, I mean, we were relatively like taking my high school. The school system was a relatively mixed income area because we were a border town for the Navajo Nation in Flagstaff, Arizona. So we had a lot of people from the Navajo reservation, a lot of people from the Hispanic community all in this school. And so we had this really cool, diverse milieu of people just associating from different cultural backgrounds and everything. And I recognized I ended up leaving and going to college and a lot of other people I went to school with didn't. And I had nothing to do with my level of intelligence. I know for a fact I wasn't the smartest person in my school. A lot of that had to do with opportunity. And then the same thing when I got into Cornell later on. A lot of places weren't willing to take a shot on me for a bunch of reasons. I didn't have the greatest GPA. I had to check a few boxes that people were like, I don't know if we want to bring this person into the school, but I had somebody who was willing to take a shot on me. And I started realizing, man, there's this real tremendous opportunity that we're missing out on of understanding people who come from non-traditional backgrounds and also understanding, is anybody willing to give a shot, give somebody a shot? Because I think most of us who've had some class transition experience can think back to somebody in our life who took a shot on us and how much that meant. And then the more I started digging into this, I just started realizing, oh my gosh, there's not a lot of shots are being given. We've actually established a lot of barriers to people moving up instead of saying, yeah, let's keep this pipeline open. Let's facilitate this. And that's a shame because, man, the people who've been upwardly mobile have an immense amount of skills and abilities that are actually not found in a lot of other life backgrounds. And we're missing out on that. A lot of my listeners were like, "Yo, this is a DEI podcast. And even from what you just stated, it's pretty clear to me how it relates to DEI, but just to make sure that everyone's on the same page, let's break it down. So why should we care about social class and social class mobility from a DEI perspective? I mean, there's generally high level reasons, and there's also some specific 
tactile reasons. And I'll even go farther and say there's ones that specifically in our country and right now we should. At the extremely high level, it's just the ethos that most countries, cultures, societies claim to have. We want to be the kind of place where people can start at the bottom and move up to the top and we're meritocratic and we want to be the kind of place where hard work moves you ahead, right? We want to be that. And I understand that. So from a values perspective, I think we should care about it because it, when, if we can facilitate that, then we're living out who we claim we want to be. On the tactile level, man, it's been super exciting to be in this space over the last few years because we've been kind of, I think, overturning a few of the sacred cows and like how we understand people who've been upwardly mobile. Historically, the belief is, and there's certainly a lot of stereotype research that would point to this. People tend to look at folks who come from lower social class background as being maybe less intelligent, maybe not being as hardworking, you know, being less proactive in how they get things done, like less willing to just take initiative and do stuff. And increasingly, the evidence is saying those are not true. In fact, almost the exact opposite is true. If you've been upwardly mobile at some point, you have been overcoming adversities and proactively pushing against systems for a long time, your whole life. The way that that has shaped you is incredibly useful to the groups that I study, management groups, professional groups. If you see somebody who, like as an example, let's say I'm at the Darden Business School, right? So you have two people coming out of Darden. It means right now where you meet them, relatively comparable GPAs, all that kind of stuff, resume stuff about the same. You're meeting them, they've achieved the exact same thing. They're coming out of a Darden MBA program. That's awesome. But one of them comes from this background of eliteness, which you can see like elite undergraduate, internships, pre-undergraduate elite law firms or whatever, hospital. And then you have another person who's like, well, I came from a lower ranked school before coming here. And before that, I came out of public school and was, had a job through college and all that kind of stuff. What we tend to do is say, let's look at that track record of eliteness, because look at how awesome that looks on paper. What I think is important to do and why this relates to some of the diversity and inclusion stuff is that actually dismisses this tremendous value that the person who's been upwardly mobile on that upward trajectory has, because they've shown, you know, most companies say, I want somebody who's really good at dealing with adversity or a person who can show real grit and persistence. Well, the person with the upward trajectory, you can see that on their resume. Look what they've pushed through to get to where they are and achieve the same thing as a person who's had much more advantage, right? Much more privilege. Similarly, the person who's moved up, like if you want people who are take charge, show initiative, that's also demonstrated in that upward trajectory, right? So we're like, we're discounting that and discounting all of this potential benefit. And also, by the way, discounting the value we say we want to hold as a society of being the kind of person that rewards all that hard work, which is not to say people who've been privileged are not working hard. They, of course, do. I'm just saying there's fewer barriers, right? There's more opportunities than there. We're discounting that. So I think in terms of if we want to create diversity of experience, which a lot of organizations say they do, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of perspectives, this is an important element of that. Do we understand people who come from less privileged, less resource-rich environments, people who come from less privileged positions in society? So that's like the tactile reason. Other tactile reasons would be, it turns out people who come from lower social class backgrounds tend to also exhibit things that we really like from a leadership perspective, a team's perspective. That is some of my own research, and this has now been shown in a bunch of other studies, have found folks that come from wealthier backgrounds during their childhood tend to develop more narcissistic tendencies as adults. Now, that's not like lay somebody on a couch and clinically diagnose them as a narcissist, but it's they tend to show more tendencies of narcissistic behavior and, and thought. It's like a subclinical level of narcissism. And that affects the way they lead other people. They do less of what we consider like really important leadership behaviors, building good relationships. 
clearly structuring tasks for people, being open to people's input. It can be problematic in that way. But on the flip side, they, it turns out people who've been upwardly mobile show a lot of personal initiative. They do speak up about a lot of issues, which is really important. Employee voice, getting people to speak truth to power. They're very likely to do that. We just collected some data that we're working on right now that ends up finding that in research and innovation teams, research and development teams in this big company we studied, social class diversity of background is strongly predictive of their performance as a team, as rated by their managers. Like they can also help facilitate good team dynamics because they've learned the ability to do that. And that's the theory behind that, if you're at all interested, is like if you're coming from a less privileged background, you have to get good at interacting with people in your community. Community currency is actually almost more important than financial currency, right? Because I can't go have a job if I don't have a great relationship with my neighbors so that they can watch my kid when my kid's sick and can't go to school. I can't afford a babysitter. So if my kid gets sick, I got to stay home. Then I'm in trouble at work. I might get fired. But if I got an, a good relationship with my neighbor and they can come watch my kid, I can go to work and even have that job. Or if my car breaks down, the person across the street can give me a lift. Those social connections are how we get things done in lower social class positions. And so that makes people very interdependent and community focused, right? Community oriented. And when people bring that into the workplace, it leads to good leadership behaviors and good team dynamics. So that's the practical side. On the tactile side, I think we should care about it because wow, in this current era and in the United States of America, there has been a tendency that is extremely pronounced to have social class, race, and gender correlates very tightly with race and gender here. And so I do think also, if you're wanting to encourage goals around equity and inclusion, understanding the social class structures that we've set up that disproportionately disadvantage some groups becomes incredibly important. So I think on multiple levels, understanding this as an element of diversity matters a lot. Thank you for that. You mentioned elite, and I want to come back to that later. But for right now, I want to touch on the concept of social class mobility and the conundrum, right, that we have in this country, because you mentioned America, like it's like the American dream. We have in our ethos this idea of people being able to transcend where they've started. But at the same time, we actually don't necessarily see those people positively. Many times we hear the term social climber, and it really has a negative connotation to it. So why do you think, even though this country and our culture, we like to have this American dream type of transformation story, but in many cases, we actually frown upon that. I mean, I think the word social climber, at least, I wouldn't know the data. I'm sure somebody in, in you know, communications or something would know this. But to me, at least, it has a connotation of people who are acting politically and trying to make the important network connections and move up. And we know like that kind of behavior can make people feel icky about it. But when it comes to social class mobility, especially upward mobility, we have this really interesting dynamic that I haven't really figured out yet. And it's actually where my research is starting to go is to figure out why we do this. But I started realizing this weird thing where I'm like, everybody talks about upward mobility as a good thing. Like, we want to encourage that. We want to see more people moving up the social class ladder. And we want to be the country where that happens. And yet, those folks aren't being hired as much, right? They kind of get filtered out. So Lauren Rivera at Kellogg has shown this, right? That in elite settings, those kinds of cues that you don't come from an elite background, even if you've achieved what everybody else has achieved, like we've ended up in the same destination, can kind of be held against you or can be seen as not as good of a cultural fit. Whatever that means, that's a very loaded term too. So we're like, okay, so we have these great people who have been, they've demonstrated upward mobility. They've demonstrated the persistence to move into a higher social class position. And as our data shows, they're likely to be less 
self-oriented, more interdependent. They're likely to speak up a lot about important problems. They have all these great things going for them. So why are we hiring them? To start trying to understand that, I sent out some just online surveys where I said, imagine somebody whose life trajectory looks like this. And I just was showing people different lines, you know, lines pointing down, lines pointing up, lines that were flat at different positions, high, middle, and low. So basically trying to get people to consider what are your implicit beliefs about people whose life trajectory has followed these different paths that these lines were showing. And what's come out of that so far at a rough level is people really don't like downward mobility. Whenever they see downward mobility, they just immediately go lazy, incapable of handling hard things. Rarely do people go, well, that person must have suffered a significant life event right, of some kind which is how a lot of people do move down in this country. So we have this belief that it's about them as a person. Same thing if people have just been stable but low, if they've had a low social class experience their entire life from beginning to end. People are like, ah, oh, they're not very hardworking, maybe they're not very intelligent, all these other kinds of biases. People who've been stable and high, people who've been always like born into privilege, have remained in privilege, people feel kind of ambivalent about. There's a lot of positive things. They must be probably pretty smart and talented, and then they've gotten these elite experiences but also maybe not very nice. They might seem a little bit cold. They might be judgy. They might be spoiled. So it's kind of this ambivalent language. But man, just everybody loves upward. People who've been started off in a lower position and moved up, it was all positive, all positive all the time. They're hardworking, they're desirable, they're smart, they're wonderful, they're, you know, all this, they're probably kind, all of these great things. I'm like, so this makes no sense. The bias is positive towards people who've been upwardly mobile in terms of you started bottom, moved to the top. We love that. And yet we're still not hiring them. So what gives? And that's, I think, the big question that we have to start wrestling with is if people are saying, I want more of that, I like more of that, then what have we set up? And what are the fears that exist in our head around giving them an actual opportunity <laughs> to continue their trajectory? I wonder how much of it has to do with, I feel like my boss wants me to hire the person that has like the track record of eliteness. If I have to justify who I'm picking, that person's easier to justify because I can just look at this and go, look at all this glittery stuff on their resume. It could be customer facing, client facing. It could be, we need to show our clients and customers like, look at this high status background of blah, blah, blah that all of our people have. I don't really know what's preventing us from hiring what we know should be very talented people and people that have a whole bunch of traits that were like, we love it. So I'm curious. So in your example, did it make a difference in terms of relative position or were people making decisions based on the class transitions, right? Because you can go upward or downward, but still stay within that same social class, right? So I can be rich from start and I can just become richer. That's still an upward trajectory in that social class. Or I can be really rich, but lose a little bit of money, but I'm still in a rich class. Is there a relative standing of how these perceptions, what people were making them, or did they actually? Not really that I saw at this point. I mean, I also think we become the social class spectrum. It's this really interesting form of diversity, too, because in our brains, even though we probably shouldn't do this as much either, we think about a lot of elements of diversity as being categorical. You know, we think of like, I mean, it's why as a social scientist, people are now changing this, right? Where they go like, we used to just say male, female. Now we're realizing, oh, that's not actually accurate, right? Or certain other like, you know, racial categories. Somebody doesn't identify with one of those. They could have multiple things. We think of them as more categorical than we probably should. But social class is just absolutely not categorical. It is a spectrum, and, but it's a very fuzzy spectrum. And I think one of the things that you're getting at is people have a subjective sense of their class. That is, you could be super privileged and look around and go, well, I think I'm middle class. As a matter of fact, at the university I used to teach at, that was common. I used to ask all of my undergraduate students at this very rich university. 
So what do you think is your social class position? Like, I think I'm middle class. And you have a sense of how much your parents made. And they're like, about $250,000 a year. I'm like, yeah, you are not, pal. Like, you are just objectively not. There is that subjective part. But in that example I just gave, it shows the limits of that, which is it's super inaccurate. Like most people actually have very little clue what social class they're in. They just compare themselves to the bubble that they're in. And there is the actual access to resources that shapes you in very specific ways. There's a psychological part, which is I feel like I'm high status, low status within this group, for sure. But also, even if you're, if you think you're middle class, but you're in Richie Richville, you're not going to act like a person who's been shaped by middle class resources or working class resources. They differ. It's why I actually very, very rarely use subjective perceptions of class in my own stuff. Because I'm like, I kind of want to figure out how the actual environment has impacted you more than your perception of it. Because also in your example, when you first came in, that was a perfect example of like, I grew up poor, but I never felt poor until I was in this other group. So that's a common thing too. Is like, so you probably would have been like, no, nah, I'm probably somewhere in the middle, right? And it's like, objectively not. So you were shaped in specific ways regardless of how you felt about it. I think people are really bad. We don't have the nuance to get at what you're saying, like when you move from rich to super rich. But I also wonder how much of a difference it would make at certain areas. Like I imagine it would make a huge difference if you moved a little bit from like poverty to no longer in poverty. That would make a, a very big difference. But if I'm moving from millionaire to 1.5 to two, whatever, that kind of thing, would it make a difference? Sure, I'm not saying it wouldn't, but like you're, it's way less of a difference because you're already kind of good then folks would be moving from the bottom up to the middle. So I do imagine there being like some spectrum there. So I, I like your conversation about it's not being a cortical variable in that sense. There's a lot of fuzziness involved because one of the most phenomenal things, and I'm using phenomenal in a sense like it's crazy, egregious, is the whole Operation Varsity Blues scandal. Oh my gosh. And this whole idea where it's, it's not just about money, right? So you have people... Are you trying to get me worked up, dude? You're trying to like get me worked up. I'm going to go on a rant. Go ahead, please. I want to get you worked up. I definitely want to get you worked up. And so I thought it was such a beautiful case study, right? Of how people with the most privilege, the most money, right? Can still try to game the system. And so... As a person who studies social class and social class mobility, right? What's your take on this whole thing? Well, so I'm going to do two things. I'm going to be the scientist, the dispassionate scientist who talks about it with data, and then I'm going to tell you what I think. So they're related, but like the one's editorialized, one's not. So Stefan Cote, great friend of mine and colleague, co-author, we do a number of projects in this space together, and he's just awesome too. For anybody who's looking for resources, Stefan Cote, University of Toronto, Rotman, does a lot of cool stuff on this. We actually did a paper on this that like the people who were born into privilege and have remained in privilege, that is, you're looking at stable, high class folks compared to basically any other trajectory, people who've been downwardly mobile, born in, without privilege and stayed without privilege, people who've been upwardly mobile, anything else. The people who were born high, stayed high throughout their life, espoused significantly the highest levels of entitlement. And by the way, that's self-rated. That's their own rating of their level of agreement with questions like, Yes, I do deserve more than other people do. Things like that. When it comes to this, I think you see echoes of that in a lot of places. And this Operation Varsity Blues would be one, which is like, yes, I'm able to use my resources. I mean, I, I'm entitled to have these positions. I do not have to play by the rules because this is something that I can accomplish for myself. I'm allowed to do it. These things don't apply to me. I deserve to be here. My kids deserve to be here. I get, so whatever I got to do, that's fine by me. The regular systems don't apply, right, to me. It should to somebody else. The regular systems around fairness and that kind of stuff. So I think you see a little bit of that there. 
Personally, dude, look, that was super public. That ain't rare. That ain't rare. This kind of stuff happens all over the place, man. I mean, my goodness. There's a great book. Harrington had this book, Capital Without Borders, where she's a sociologist who wrote this great book. She talks about, here's all of the different ways that different systems get workarounds, get people to buy their way around the system, you know. And some of the stuff we formalize, we encourage, like, hey, if you're willing to pay X amount more, you don't have to wait in line at Disneyland, right, at a low level kind of thing. But then there's also ones like, oh, my God, look at legacy admissions in all kinds of universities, right? There's things about, oh, my dad played golf with this person's parent and knows this person's parent. And so that's where I'm interning. And now all of a sudden, so this thing becomes a self-perpetuating cycle because we have access to these resources, income, I can make things happen, social networks around my occupation and education so that I can just make these other things happen that circumvent processes and systems. And, and folks that don't have those resources can't circumvent those systems. And this just becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. I get worked up about it because these are also the things that are like, man, you say you value this dream of upward mobility. Those are things that directly cut against it. If you truly believe that the next generation below you and stuff is amazing, better, smarter, all this kind of stuff could like compete with anybody, then actually let them compete. So circumvent the competition. So I don't know. That's my own two cents on that one. But that was a brutal one. I read that with bated breath and just like, I almost for a while was like, I should write a business case about this. And I'm like, not really, because the answer on this one's obvious. Like everybody's just gonna be like, yeah, that's obviously unfair. What's going on, right? So you wouldn't have a very rich discussion around it. Buddy, I get worked up about that because that plays out in hiring decisions. That plays out in college admissions decisions. That plays out in all kinds of spaces in society. I agree. We see it all the time. And I don't think it gets talked about enough yeah. so that we can have these conversations. By the way, speaking of the ethos that we have here is like, historically, we viewed ourselves as a class-less society. And that's not true. That's just objectively not true. Even back when we all kind of agreed that it was, there was people who were landowners and people who were not and people who were obviously historically enfranchised and people who were not. And there's this like, we were never classless. We just loved the sound of that. As a result, think of all the ways that affects us. People don't talk about money. We're in universities, so our income's easy to find. But like, we're one of the very few. Most places, like there's no pay transparency. We don't talk about income. When we're in groups of people, we never talk about how much we make. And part of that we tell ourselves is like, well, I don't want to make other people feel awkward. I don't want to feel awkward. It's a way of reducing status. I'm like, while that's true in some situations, in other situations, we absolutely need to talk about these things. Otherwise, we can't start making headway on them. And I understand that's uncomfortable to go, yeah, you know, I make X amount of money and a person sitting right next to you is like, I make literally 60% of that and I'm doing the exact same job. God, that's awkward. That's socially awkward. But we need to surface that. Let's talk about this whole notion of prestige or elite. Considering we have these values and we want to make a change, is it possible to coexist in a world? where we can still have, quote unquote, prestigious institutions or prestigious organizations, elite organizations? Or is that basically the antithesis of how we get to this fair, more equitable world? Can they coexist or are we just fooling ourselves to try to think? Let me give mine and then I'm going to be really interested in yours. So mine is yes, but I'd like it to be based on more than just who went here 30 years ago. I would like it to be based in more practical skills. I'd like it to be based in more meaningful things than just do we have a big social network base out there, a big alumni organization, things that reinforce and re-entrench 
I guess, of an existing status hierarchy. So you'd like to see it be more meritocratic. Now, will it ever be purely 100% meritocratic? I'm not Pollyanna. No. I mean, I think there's always going to be folks who are like, are able to find ways ahead. And there's people really do, for instance, I, this is a good example. My kids go to a Montessori school. I feel deeply conflicted about this, dude. Like my wife and I actually had a number of conversations that were really problematic. I'm a public school kid. And I'm like, dude, they're just going to be surrounded by like, wait, first of all, way less cultural diversity, but also people who just have everything. They're going to be coming home being like, why can't I have blah, blah, blah. And that happens a little bit. But part of the reason why I went that route was I was like, well, the schools that I'm zoned to are overcrowded. A lot of the teachers are fantastic, by the way. I toured some of our local schools. The teachers are amazing, but it's just hard to give attention to individual students when you have 35 kids in this, you know, small kids in a classroom. And so I was like, all right, I want my kids to have this education. I ended up making that choice for them. And I thought that was best for them. But I feel very conflicted about it because this is also a way in which we're like, yes, now they're going to get this individualized attention. They're going to get this socio-emotional growth. They're going to get all this kind of stuff that doesn't happen in other areas. And they're going to miss out on some growth in some other areas. And I really struggle with it. There will always be some of that I'm able to afford because of what I've done. My kids are going to get some benefits of that. So so there's some element of this will always not be purely meritocratic. But at the same time, I don't think that means that our systems need to encourage that. And that's where I think we start getting into real problems is like when our systems are set up to make that institutionalized, that sort of thing. There will always be some privileges, some benefits. Kids get to go do fun activities and have exposures other kids in other environments don't have. I think it's unrealistic to tell people, no, never do any of that. But at the same time, our formal systems don't need to reinforce that. Our educational systems don't need to reinforce that. Our hiring systems don't need to reinforce that. We actually do have some control systematically beyond what an individual would choose. Our systems can do some work here. I really agree with you a lot on that. And so for me, I think it depends on what is the eliteness or the prestige built upon. And you mentioned system. Like, so what was the system that eliteness was built upon? And so I think those things can break down, but eliteness itself or prestige itself, if it's tied around something that people have equitable access to and it's defined in a much different way, then I think it could be positive. And so it's not just this one type of organization or this one type of university per se. Like if you're not in this band, then you're not elite, right? I think you can be elite within different bands. And so this university or this organization may be really great at XYZ. And that can make that organization an elite university or elite university or elite organization. So it's not just tied to our historically oppressed systems that gave advantages for different groups and withheld advantages from other groups. And so it's a tough one for me as well, being a person who went to public schools, my husband went to private schools and our son, we've had many of these conversations. He's now in a private Montessori program as well. And we clearly see the differences in terms of what I was afforded and what he was afforded. But I do think we need to do something about breaking down the silos of prestige and elite and say it's not just tied to this type of organization. Like you can be elite or prestigious in a different way. And that could be equally valuable to a society. I agree with that 100%. It's one of the questions I get asked most is I'll present my work and I'll be like, it's really a lot of this is about trying to be the people that we say we want to be, right? And we all say we want to have equal access to opportunities. We want to you know, be a part of, want to play a role in a system that lifts people up and recognizes the value in everyone. And yet there are so many 
parents out there who are like, yeah, but I don't want my kid to be in you know the public school. I don't want my kid to, of course, want to buy private lessons for my kids so that when they go play their sport, they're really great at it. Like, why should I not do those things? Then on the flip side of that, being like, am I raising somebody who's later on going to grow up to be narcissistic? You know, who's going to grow up to think that things are revolve around them? And I'm like, that's something I truly don't have the answer on. We are trying to balance this out because if the data is relatively clear that growing up in more privileged environments leads to a more independent versus interdependent mindset, then are there things we can do that countervail that? They're kind of pushing on the other side of the scale. So one of which is, can we do more like team activities and team sports? Can we do things where you, you know, it's not like, yes, here's your dressage coach and we're funneling your expensive equipment and stuff all to you and one-on-one instruction and everything. And like when we do summer camps, can we do summer camps through these different groups that are more mixed income, like, you know, YMCA or ACAC, which is our local athletic gym here that puts on summer programs for the community, things like that. So it's like you have Montessori school is going to be, it's an extra X amount of dollars per year. It's expensive. So that already filters out a bunch of folks which is, I feel uncomfortable with. So can we find ways to make sure that you have the exposure, you learn the interdependent norms, you learn to be on teams, you learn to go pay attention to stuff beyond how everything is just affecting you, but also how you're affecting other people and your role that you play. But it's super concerted effort, man. Like I think just expecting it to happen, it won't. Nicole Stevens did, has this great review article in Annual Review of Psychology that talks about like gateway institutions, one of which is the educational system and like the schools that we're in you know, some of the schools I went to as a kid basically were like, when you speak up, they say, hey, shut up, sit down, quit making disturbances in the class. I'll bet like you, I was like pretty smart kid. So it's like you picked up once you feel like you understood the lesson, you're like, okay, I'm bored now. I'm going to go start making some mayhem. And then you just like, no, quiet, sit down, sit still, do all that kind of stuff. And like, I don't really care your opinion on this thing. It's history. Like your opinion doesn't matter. It just is. Whereas in the schools that my kids go to there. I was like, what do you think about this? Tell me your feelings about that. Tell me all of that is like these little tiny consistent signals that you are very important. You matter. Your opinion matters versus your opinion doesn't as much really, or no one cares what you think. Sit down and be quiet. And those kinds of signals can lead people to go, wow, look how important I must be. I'm getting all these resources. I'm getting tons of teacher attention. They're asking me what I think about things. I have private instruction on all these different things. All of my sports are independent sports, golf and tennis and, you know, horseback riding or whatever. These are the elite kind of things that you do like with one or two other people or by yourself versus we have to play the kinds of sports where there's one resource, there's a ball. And so 22 people, you know, if you have a ball, everybody can get in there. You have to really try to think countervail it. I don't have any data on how that's going other than I think my kids are great, but like, <laughs> like it's so hard to an individual level to push against this. That's why I'm with you. It's like we need to deeply rethink our systems and how we evaluate stuff what we can allow people to buy the way out of versus not. Just so that people won't criticize me of not being holistic. Let me ask you about, say, people in our quote unquote higher class, because we know it's not always peaches and cream. Like there's challenges, people can have challenges in every social class. So can you just explain to us, we can clearly think about the barriers and challenges people in lower class could have in our society, but you know, from a research perspective, just share with our listeners some types of challenges that people in upper class may face. By the way, I appreciate you wanting to be holistic and cover this too, because I also want to make sure I'm being really clear. I'm not at all saying folks who've been in privileged positions haven't worked hard. As a matter of fact, some of the hardest working folks that I've met, and of course, there's a selection thing there because of the spaces that I inhabit, but like these folks are working incredibly hard. 
they're working incredibly hard. And I don't want to take anything away from that or not honor that or not recognize that. It's just being able to say other people are too and might not have had the same access to opportunities that we've had. And like you just said, you and I were in higher social class positions. It might not feel that way on an everyday basis, but we absolutely are. The last time I saw, I think the average income for a family of four in the United States was like $60,000, $62,000, something like that for a family, household income. We are high up. By the way, I also wouldn't be in a business school if it wasn't an okay thing to go do, to go and accumulate some capital and go make a good income for yourself. I think that's great. The question is really, what do you do with it? If you find yourself, can you recognize your position in the social hierarchy? As far as social class goes, can you recognize where you are? And people like you and me, we have PhDs, we're making good income. We have the kinds of jobs that people go, oh, wow, that's great. Professor, tell me you must be really clever. Tell me about blah, blah, blah. We have those kinds of things. We are higher on the social class spectrum. Can you recognize your position and then say, how can I create this for other people? How can I welcome other people up? And the people who are in those positions have this unique, some people have called it gatekeepers. And I don't love that term, largely because I think it feels also punitive. Like you said, social ladder climbers, there's some connotation with gatekeeper that's like, you're a jerk and slamming the gate in people's faces and metering in who gets into the space and everything. I don't love that as much. I prefer the term opportunity providers. If you're a person who's in a position to admit someone into your PhD program or MBA program, or if you're a person who's in a position to ask a question and allow somebody else to lead a conversation who doesn't normally get the chance to lead the conversation. If you're a manager and you're a person who's like, I have an opportunity in this meeting to shape whose voices are heard by asking specific folks, like, what do you think? I want your input. I want to, who do you go to? Then you're in a position to hiring. If you're in a position to hire somebody, then you have opportunities to allocate. And we need to be deliberate in how we're allocating them. Are we giving opportunities and giving a shot in an equitable way? Or when I want to hear from somebody, do I just go to the person whose background looks elite like mine does? I'm going to assume that they're going to have better input. Or if I'm like admitting people into MBA programs, well, I'm so obsessed with the rankings that I'm always trying to gain that I'm only going to admit people with these backgrounds, right? Or like, you know, if I'm admitting people, if I'm hiring somebody onto my faculty, I'm like, one person has performed this way and they come from this lower ranked institution. This other person has nothing published, but, you know, they come from one of these schools that we all just know. We're bringing them in. Like, this is your chance. You have these opportunities to allocate in a way that do or do not align with your values. And so I do think for the people who are in higher social class positions like you and me now, that's great. Good for you. Honestly, seriously, I mean that entirely sincerely. There's responsibility with that. Like, how do you want to shape the world around you? And you can do that by how you allocate opportunities in a very strong way. Yeah, so I would never want to like take the shine off somebody. You're where you are for a reason. Part of it's opportunity, part of it's work. You can control the work part a lot more and you clearly did. Good for you. That's great. You recognize other people don't have the same opportunity set and can you be an opportunity provider? I like that. I like that phrasing of opportunity provider. I know many of us in the literature, right? When we think about social class, we know the phrase opportunity hoarder. Right? We love taking the negative spin on stuff. We want to like, yeah, which I get. That's, well, you know, it's our disposition, but there's an opportunity on the flip side of that. And so as we close, share with us what types of questions in the realm of social class that you hope to investigate yourself or you hope other people investigate so that we can move this knowledge area forward. Well, it's funny. I actually was just having a conversation with this, about this with a friend of mine. Because maybe I'm flaunting my own naivete here. So if you know better on this one, please tell me I don't mind getting called out. I don't know 
that we have a really good way in management science that we do to look at intersectionality. I don't know that we've cracked the code on like, how does that play out? So like, I'm mostly a survey researcher, right? So I send out surveys on stuff. And so from a statistics and math part, there's an interesting question there. Theoretically, there's an interesting question there around what's the role of context? How do different aspects of diversity interact, intersect? And so when it comes down to intersectionality, a part of me wonders, is social class and race and gender, are these just multiplicative? Like from a regression standpoint, do you just take interaction effects between all of them and, and try that out? Or like, is it something that we really can only uncover qualitatively? But I want to try to explore more of the nuance around how these different elements of diversity relate to one another. Because like we said earlier, here in the US, if you are not in the majority, then the odds are very high that you're also likely to be in a lower social class position, right? So if you're like a racial minority or if you're a you know, gender minority, you're, the odds of you being in lower social class position are higher. So they're tightly correlated. There's a significant correlation there, but I'm wondering, do these things, how does that play out? And I don't think we've really figured that out yet. And so I'd like to start figuring some of that out. I'd also like to start figuring out how it plays, how just class diversity plays out in teams. You know, we know from a leadership perspective, folks who are from lower social class positions, leaders often don't go to them and ask for their advice. We often know when they're in leadership positions, they actually do a pretty good job. And interestingly, in all of my research, it's funny, I've collected a number of times or gotten archivally from companies I work with performance evaluations or other performance metrics. And social class doesn't seem to predict performance, which I actually take, I think that's a cool thing, right? It's basically like the social class background of somebody does not determine if they're good at the job that they're in, which that's great. I would like to start understanding then, okay, well, so doesn't see any performance differences, seem to have less narcissistic tendencies, less entitlement, all of which are, these are research findings that we can point to right away, right? Less political behaviors. My colleague here, Peter Bellamy, has that kind of stuff. We have all these different benefits of people who from lower social class backgrounds and working their way up, no performance difference. And yet everybody also says, oh, we love upward mobility. Then where does that pressure come from? that makes, that keeps them from being hired, keeps them from being promoted, keeps people from asking the input. Where does that come from? Those are two questions I really want to, like, I guess it's like three I want to try to unpack. Social class diversity in teams, this question of intersectionality and how we treat that in our research, what it should relate to. And then also this thing around why are we not allocating opportunities that direction when they seem to have a lot of the things as managers we say we want. And from my side of it, to attempt to answer your question, I think it's at both end. We need the qualitative work, but also there's some empirical work that can and is happening out there. From a theoretical standpoint, I think about Erica Hall's, Allison Burge's work on the mosaic model, right? And how they attempted to look at intersectionality in that aspect. Also, Ashley Shelby Rosette, a lot of her work. But I think we've come to the point where it's like three identities at one time where we're coming from an intersection. And so it begins to get harder <laughs> to increase. Effective. Right? <laughs> you need a gigantic sample size. And that's when I think the qualitative responses really makes a difference. And, and particularly for myself, and just talking to a lot of people like me, we can see the limits of social class and what it gets us. And I think that's a lot of research out there, even when it comes to educational attainment, how you don't get the return on investment as a person of color in the United States, right, on educational attainment. And I can see that with social class as well. I live a great life, but I still see the limits in terms of there's things that I can't do or like I didn't get that advantage or benefit that my counterparts would get. I saw somebody who was tracking like precariousness, like likelihood of falling out of high social class stratus higher for people who are racial minorities. And so I would love to see this work move forward as well, which is one of the 
reasons why I wanted to do this episode because I think social class is just such an f- interesting concept. And it's one of those things where with the right systems in place and again, the right opportunities open up, it's much easier to be able to assist people in that transition, right? But it requires intentional efforts upon a lot of people, right? Not just an individual actor in one place, but we really need to think about it in a systematic way. And so I'm so glad that you were here to kind of help us think about this in a more systematic way. So thank you so much, Dr. Martin. Me too, man. Every time we get to talk, I feel like I get to walk away smarter. This is one of the things too that I'll throw out there last minute thing of like, man, these conversations, even though we say, oh, we shouldn't talk about it. We're classless society. It feels gauche. What's really weird is everywhere that I've talked about this, and this is in companies and other places too, almost everybody's on board. Almost everybody's just like, yeah, no, I agree. Upward mobility is a thing that we should all encourage. And so the conversation becomes very, very fun around, all right, well, then let's just talk about how we do it and let's start dismantling some old beliefs. I love it. So thanks for letting me banter on about this. This was awesome, man. Like I said, any chance to see you is very welcome. No problem. Likewise, and I couldn't have asked for a better season four finale guest. So I wish you continued success of all your future research projects. And before I go, I also just want to give a huge shout out to all of my season four sponsors and all of my Diversity Matters listeners. I look forward to bringing season five of Diversity Matters to you in March 2024. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, WH Consulting Firm, LLC. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love. Peace and love.